When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Matea reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Hey, it's Matea Roach and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and connecting Morrissey lyrics to current events. Up for today, have you heard? We have a new conservative leader and whether we like it or not, we've got to talk about it. And the Queen is dead. Is it time to crack open our constitution and jettison the monarchy once and for all? Joining me this week, someone we absolutely cannot get enough of on this show, Riley Yesno, writer and U of T PhD candidate. Hey. Hello. Good to have you on. Our eyes and ears in the prairies, we have Catherine Grykowski, reporter for Alberta Today. Nice to meet you. Thanks so much for having me on. And last but not least, someone whose tweets I absolutely cannot get enough of, welcome David Mosscrop, author, columnist, and podcast host. Hey there. Hey there. Thanks for having me. And thanks for reading the world's most inappropriate Canadian politics newsfeed. The only one I ever want to look at. Uh, let's get into it. We have a new leader. The next Prime Minister of Canada, la prochaine Premier Minister de Canada, the Honourable Pierre Polyevre and Anna Polyevre. Tonight begins the journey to replace an old government that costs you more and delivers you less with a new government that puts you first, your paycheck, your retirement, your home, your country. To the Prime Minister and to his radical, woke coalition with the NDP. Let's remove the government gatekeepers to build more homes, grow more food, and produce more energy right here in Canada. So Pierre Poiliev was elected leader of the Conservative Party in a shocking twist, uh, a true underdog story, the Rocky Balboa of Canadian politics. The underdog pulls through incredible scenes. Just kidding. He absolutely wiped out his competitors, as everyone predicted, winning 68% of the vote in a landslide victory. Pierre Poiliev has been described as a lot of things. A populist, a fake populist, an attack dog, Trump light, an elitist, a man of the people. But there's absolutely no denying his popularity. And his campaign achievements reflect that. He brought in a massive number of new people to the Conservative Party. According to the Toronto Star, he sold more than 311,000 Conservative membership cards during his campaign, compared to just 24,000 by Jean Charest. Poiliev has managed to latch on to the frustration that many Canadians are feeling and use this as fuel for his bid to be Prime Minister. 
What actions Polyev actually plans on taking to remedy these frustrations, keep costs down, as he says, and make housing affordable are much less clear. It's also unclear how much of Poilievre's popularity stems from genuine excitement about what he has to offer as opposed to just disenchantment with the liberals after seven years of so-called sunny ways, and people feel like maybe they haven't done that much with it. Today, we're going to talk about Poilievre, what he stands for, how he got to where he is, and how his presence might shake things up for Canada. So first things first, as David Byrne once said, how did I get here? David, how did Poilievre actually run his campaign and make it so successful? Oh, you've made me so happy with that reference. That is by far my favorite song of all time. And in fact, I went so far as to pay money to be able to use it in my book. Here's the thing. He, in a sense, was the man for the moment. He came along at a time where several overlapping crises were making life difficult for a lot of people and making a lot of people anxious. And he came along and he picked up on that anxiety, that anger, that frustration. As the government aged, as we faced down the pandemic, year three, as we face down climate change and affordability crisis inflation. And he decided to effectively weaponize that by spinning a narrative of the elites are out to get you. Here are all the people you got to blame. I am your savior. Send me your money, give me your vote, and we'll fix everything. That's not new. It's a sort of faux populist play, but it's wildly effective. Here's the caveat. At some point, you have to start delivering. So now we know how he succeeded, uh, but whether or not he'll be successful now that he's won uh, is, is to be determined. He's, you know, since he's the dog that, that caught the car. I think that's very true. He's tapped into a certain zeitgeist of how people are feeling, particularly in the wake of the pandemic, that I think a lot of other politicians have not really wanted to touch. How do you think Poilievre's campaign differed from his opponents, right? Like, why do you think that someone like Jean Charest or, you know, Leslin Lewis was not maybe able to or willing to tap into that anger and frustration in the same way. The fact is that Polyev decided from day one that he was going to run a sort of angry everyman populist campaign. And that, that represented a sort of conservatism that's been implicit in the Conservative Party since Stephen Harper won, uh, a sort of libertarian, sort of Thatcherish. Uh, conservatism, Reaganish conservatism, of small government, of uh, individual freedoms, of libertarianism. But, however, this is an important sort of asterisk, refusing to dip into the social conservatives pool. So that would distinguish him, for instance, from Leslie Lewis, who is an unabashed social conservative. Polyev kind of tried to court them a little bit, but didn't certainly uh, play up social conservatism, certainly not like Leslie Lewis did. And Sheree is just an old school red Tory who is, I mean, not to give too much credence to, to Polyev's attacks, but it looks increasingly more like a liberal than a conservative, in part because the party has shifted over time. And given that, you know, Polyev has brought in so many new members that reflect his politics, the party will probably end up even more conservative than it was before in the sort of traditional libertarian sense of the word. So he just ran a sort of different ideological campaign. And I'm going to do the drill tweet here for a second, if you don't mind. You, you've got to give it up a little bit for the conservatives here because they did run an ideologically diverse leadership campaign. It really was 
several different camps. And there was a proper debate about how we ought to govern ourselves. And, uh, you know, the liberals don't do that. Even the NDP doesn't really do that. They did. And probably have capitalized on that. The NDP definitely doesn't do that. Like, they seem to be allergic to socialism in the NDP these days. And so credit where credit's due to the conservatives for actually having a good diversity, I think, of, of opinions. So speaking of the NDP and the liberals, and perhaps, you know, some things that the conservatives are doing well that they are not doing... Riley, how do you think the current political context outside the Conservative Party has shaped the outcome of this leadership election? Yeah, I think David is apt in really saying that the moment was so ripe, right? Like, I think it's always really funny the way that the Sunny Ways discussion it was something that latched onto people so well. And I'm like, we've been in terrible days, <laughs> like the pandemic, uh, you know, like just so many things that for any leader, even the best of leaders would have been like a really hard time. And so like the way that Polyev was able to spin what was the reality to speak to people and, and make them say like, oh no, it, they could have been doing something like, I don't know. I just think it's, it, it was really impressive in terms of like the p- political campaigning he, he was able to do on that end. And part of that is looking at like things like the, liberal NDP coalition on certain things that has, you know, not been super effective, uh, despite all the promises that they made, just furthers adds, you know, fuel to his fire and to his narrative. It's further proof. And so I think he has like really come in at a right moment that his team is able to so effectively pinpoint the divisions or the, the just series of unfortunate events that, you know, has happened over the last two years and spin it to their advantage. I can see how that narrative of division and, and polarization and also exceptionalism, that it, somehow the Polyev has exceptional answers that the liberals, the NDPs could not possibly have, is going to continue to work, at least for the time being. Polyev is maybe the man for the moment in a way that Andrew Scheer and Aaron O'Toole were perhaps not men for the moments that they inherited. Like, Andrew Scheer, I think, you know, was contesting an election where there'd been an ethics scandal, but people weren't as tired of the liberals as perhaps they are now. Aaron O'Toole, I think, perhaps was hesitant to go full populist and was trying to be like a little bit more moderate in a way that Poiliev has just decided he's not going to do. And so I think that although people were also super frustrated because of the uh, extremely bad days that we've been having over the past couple of years in the 2021 election, like O'Toole was not really tapping into people's sort of righteous anger and indignation in the same way. And also it was pre-convoy too. So that's something, you know, that I think has affected things. So Catherine, like, what do you think Poiliev really hopes to accomplish. If he were PM today, what do you think would actually change? That's a good question because throughout the campaign, we heard things about the convoy, about the World Economic Forum, about Sheree being this dastardly liberal. And then in his victory speech, he really pivoted. And I think what we could see from him is maybe this focus on lowering taxes, on fighting inflation, on reducing the size of, of government. These are these are the type of policies he'll probably fall into. But the question is, as things move forward, will we see the Liberals try to drive that wedge between the two sides of the party? Will they try to bring up that social conservatism within the party? Will they try to bring up and tie Polyev to some of these more conspiracy theories that that don't necessarily resonate with the wider public, but were very popular with the base? Or will, will he stay focused on that message of fiscal conservatism, fiscal discipline? And I, th- and I think that's, that's probably the direction he's going to try to go is on that cost of living, on that fiscal conservatism. 
Obviously, there is a faction of the conservative party that does sort of really appreciate and enjoy the very, you know, anti-World Economic Forum, vaccine passports are a form of slavery, like that genre of rhetoric. And Kualiev was one of the only mainstream, like, big-name politicians that really went hard in the paint supporting the, the convoy supporters and saying, you know, they're really not all as bad as that. So... How do you think the wake of the convoy and the way in which other politicians just sort of tried to distance themselves from it as much as possible, like, how is this going to continue to play out with him as leader? And might liberals and the NDP actually, like, fall into a sort of trap where they try and smear anyone who supports Polyev as being, like, the worst possible version of a conspiracy theorist? I mean, some have fallen into that trap already. And uh, it's it's the sort of person who says that populism is inherently bad and inherently dangerous. I mean, I've been making the case for left populism for some time. I do think we ought to have more populist politics. We ought to be able to distinguish, though, between a populist politics that take as the opponent, for instance, corporations, banks, uh, you know, entrenched wealthy elite decision makers on the one hand, or government itself, or social programs on the other, right? I mean, it's an important distinction to make. But I think we'll see what we, we typically see with these things to some degree, which is you run one way when you're running for a leader, because you have a sub-constituency of voters, and then you have to change when you win, because now you have to appeal to a broader constituency of voters. It's the difference of trying to appeal to, you know, 5% of the population versus, you know, 40% of the population. That said, I'm going to hedge a little bit, because Polyev is who he is, so I don't think he's going to abandon that altogether. I think we're still going to see that that same sort of politics. I just think it's going to be a little more tactical, uh, strategic, and muted to try to fit the moment, because he doesn't need to win 45% of the vote or even 40% of the vote. He can probably form government with 38%. And they probably are looking at the numbers and are ready to target a very particular subset of Canadians. And the same with the Liberals do, if you look at the course of the last 100 years. The Liberals win with less. They're getting really, really good at winning with fewer and fewer votes. And And they know it, and that's their play. And I suspect Polyev is probably going to adopt a similar one. So I would say the the tone may shift a little bit. We already see them trying to humanize him more. He's got his kid out. It's super cringe, but the media picks it up and it's good for business. They've centered his wife, who is an extraordinarily compelling figure, again, to try to, to play off a different sort of Polyev. I think you'll see more of that. But I don't think the politics behind him have changed. They're still there, even if there's a, a new coat of paint on it. But I do think if if the liberals and NDP aren't careful, they're going to end up alienating the very base of people whom they need to mobilize to try to to defeat him. I've been thinking about, you know, how the liberals will respond to this the whole time. And like, I don't see a third option. And maybe one of you have an idea that would be ideal for them. Either they're going to tie him to like this really almost conspiracy theorist social conservatism, which I think is a bad tactic for them. But also the liberals have this like, bad habit of like falling into this ego where they're like, our record speaks for itself. Look at this, like all these things we've done and really overestimate how pleased people are with what they've actually done. And so that tactic's not going to work for them either if it comes to election time and they're just like, well, the the proof is in the pudding. It's like, no, it's not. (laughs) I don't even think that their message is speaking for themselves because, you know, all of a sudden these pandemic benefits are drying up. They talk a lot, but what have they actually done? And I think what Polyev did that was so successful was that he spoke to the fact that people feel like they are not getting ahead. 
And what the NDP has really failed to capitalize on, as David was speaking to, this idea of left populism is, okay, costs are going up and wages are going up. Wages are going up by like half of what inflation is going up by. So I, th I think they need to actually just, instead of saying our record speaks for itself, is they need to do, they actually need to do something. <laughs> So much of what you've all said on this like resonates with me so deeply because I think it would be a huge mistake for the liberals in the next election campaign to lean too hard into trying to smear the conservatives as being conspiracy theorists or being white supremacists or being what have you, even though obviously there are some people who aff affiliate themselves with the party who believe these things. It simply isn't true for so many people that really feel spoken to by Poiliev's message about affordability. One thing that I think is kind of unique about Poiliev as a Canadian politician is like, he takes this very particular tone where he basically is just like, fuck you, fuck the Trudeau government, fuck the media. He's also spoken a lot about gatekeeping. He has a petition on his website titled Fire the Gatekeepers. Riley, what do you think about these themes and buzzwords that he's using? Like, why is he using them? And is there a bit of a danger in some of the terminology that he's using? Short answer, yes. I think that the reason that he uses things like that, and this is where I worry about his effectiveness, because I, I think it is using those words, even if he's using them incorrectly, even if they are dangerous, <laughs> all these things, they're ones that actually speak to people. And this is speaking to people on a level that they also speak is something that like Jagmeet Singh has tried to do with his like TikTok whole, you know, <laughs> career and whatever, and did it so friggin' poorly that to see Pierre is, right now is doing what all of those other politicians want to do in using those words, is that there are things that uh, exist in people's ecosystems, that they recognize it in some way, that also adds to his credibility of feeling like a relatable character in people's minds. And again, the, the conversation about like, is he using them properly? People go with their emotional reaction, which is that I understand that or like I recognize that you're using that. I don't see politicians do that. And that matters more to me than sitting here and thinking about actually the context of that you're putting it in. Some people, of course, do and are, are, and are very critical about like those things, but not everybody. And I think enough people don't do that to make it you know beneficial to him. Dangerous and effective. Yeah, I was thinking specifically how Polyev has been very good at taking concepts that are essentially contested in the public sphere, concepts we disagree with the meaning of which, and mobilizing for his own purposes. And it's a skill. It's an extraordinary skill. And he's been very good at agenda setting, deciding what we should talk about, and framing, deciding how we should talk about the things that we talk about. So for instance, Gatekeeping is a great example of that. I see the gatekeeper. Uh, there are gatekeepers. I see them as uh, corporate players and bankers. So does Polyev a little bit. I think we should critique the Bank of Canada. We should be asking questions like, are we engineering a recession? And what are the effects of that? And are those effects more desirable long term than the effects of letting this play out in a different way? Let's have that debate. But he's made it toxic. I think we should criticize the World Economic Forum. The left has been saying we should criticize the World Economic Forum for a very, very, very long time. Uh, but Polyev has tied it into sort of uh, conspiracy theories and made it toxic. Again, this is the problem here is that he is owning that space. He has flooded the zone and it's remarkably effective. And to, to go back to points that were discussed earlier, the left hasn't had a credible, nor has a center really, uh, response to that. And until there is one, he's just going to keep dominating the, the space. 
And we're going to lose those issues. We're going to lose the agenda. We're going to lose the, the frame more. And if you start to lose those two things, you probably start to lose power. I think on every level, when it comes to framing, when it comes to speaking the language of the everyday person, Jagmeet's TikToks are not hitting. And Pierre Poiliev, despite having literally been a politician since he was basically the age I am now, which is crazy to think of, like that man has been a politician for so long. And for some reason, a GQ article from Jagmeet and TikToks is not cutting it. Pierre Poiliev understands that we all eat breakfast and we all are upset when butter costs too much, right? So he's winning. You got to hand it to him. Poiliev, I think, has been following the tack of a number of other right-wing populists when it comes to the way that he engages with the media and his criticism of the media as being biased, as being in the pocket of big liberal, which is ironic given how bad the left's agenda setting and messaging has been, as we've mentioned. Recently, during a press conference, he was heckled by global reporter David Aiken. Thank you very much. Am I being I'm being heckled here by 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 the by? Thank you very much for your congratulations. We we have we we have uh, basically a, a liberal heckler who snuck in here today. To and while the journalist was clearly being an asshole, in general, Poliev has just not been kind to the media. So, Catherine, what do you think about Poliev's treatment of the media? Like, what implications of how he's responded to journalists are there going to be going forward? Well, here in Alberta, I've been been living this since um, Premier Kenny came to office. And the way I describe Kenny is perhaps how Polyev is acting. He's a total glass jaw, loves to throw punches at the media, but extremely sensitive. You might even say a snowflake when it comes to criticism. Premier Kenny, sometimes he'll go on for an hour in a news conference. Sometimes he'll go weeks without speaking to media. But there is this right-wing media ecosystem in this country. So I think what could end up happening is he gives the more exclusive interviews and sit-downs with friendly media. And he has this very adversarial relationship with the parliamentary press gallery. So that's something we could see. And I, I feel like once upon a time, there was an understanding of the role that media played in democracy. And we, we didn't always need to see eye to eye. There's that necessary criticism back and forth. But at the end of the day, we, we saw each other as humans. And, and, and I worry that the media, much like other people he, he is blaming, Will, will sort of become this target. And what ends up happening is there's a very long list of people who you can blame for your problems. And I see it also with Alain Reyes, how he's left the caucus and there was this attack. Even, even somebody who was on his own team, even somebody who was an MP for the Conservatives and left, I don't like it. I think there should be an understanding of the job we all have to do. And I think it there was that fundraising email attacking the media that uh, was extremely similar to the language Trump used against the media. And I just think it's it's bad for democracy. We're all here because we want democracy to to succeed. And let's 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 play nice, please. <laughs> yeah, it's like I really hesitate to make any Trump comparison because I feel like immediately people on the right cease taking you seriously at the point where you're just like, that guy's bad because he reminds me of another bad guy. Kind of a dark note to end off on, but a story that we will continue to watch here at the backbench. You know, we'll see if some of our predictions about how Poiliev is going to lead actually end up manifesting.
Point of order, speaker. Uh, yes, David, what's your point of order? It's the fall. It's not September 22nd, but it's the fall. I want to take a moment to try to appreciate that we're in a post-truth era. We've long been sliding into a post-truth era, but we're in it now. Now, that represents an opportunity and a challenge. The challenge is that if we can no longer agree on basic facts, then we can't have public discussions. But the opportunity is that now we're free from unreasonable burdens, as Pierre Polyev has taught us. That's fantastic news, because I believe the fall begins when you want it to begin. And I'm awfully tired of false goals that tell me it's too early to drink pumpkin beer and pumpkin spice lattes. Fall begins when you want it to begin. It's a feeling in your heart. So I would like us to accept the fact that, especially now in the post-truth era, fall is a state of mind, and you can fall whenever you want. And for me, that's mid-July. And I would invite others to join me in what, I don't want to use the word crusade, but in a movement, a movement of freedom, of liberty, and of pumpkin spice. That is not a point of order, but certainly a moving call to perhaps a fall convoy on Ottawa where we drink <laughs> pumpkin spice lattes uh, on the hill and see what happens. Personally, I've also decided that fall begins when I want it to begin. And so I've decided fall only starts when I come back from California, which is October 1st. Thank you, David. I will take this note under advisement. <laughs> Speaker, I have a point of order. Yeah, Riley, what's your point of order? So this is really unfortunate following the conversation about a post-truth era, because I was like, I guess, you know, Truth and Reconciliation Day is coming up, isn't it, on the 30th? And my God, I'm just having a really hard time dealing with the people who I know will all be wearing their orange shirts and like doing whatever and putting Every Child Matters on their Facebook banner and also are like crying about the queen, um, are doing all these things. Like this year more than ever, the dissonance between like how Canadians talk about honoring like the legacy of colonialism and then also like engage with colonialism every day, it's sending me into overdrive. And so I'm just wondering if, you know, maybe this year, Who's making room for like actual critical conversations about how BS this country engages with reconciliation? And so that is my point of order. Not a point of order, but an interesting pivot on the theme of truth, I suppose. <laughs> you know, it's all part and a piece in some ways. Honorable speaker, point of order. <laughs> and I have to Yes, actually. Catherine. Oh my gosh. Wow. <laughs> We are stacked for content today. There was not unanimous consent granted to continue debate beyond the normal time. I was scrolling through TikTok to try to turn my brain off of politics and what do I come across but Quebec elections <laughs> posting TikToks with meme songs of its corn. And now when I go to the ballot box, I will hear the Careless Whisper Sea Bat song. And I don't know whether I am supposed to drop the ballot into the beat or the rhythm of Sea Bat. And I just, no more politics on my For You page, please. Point of order. Not a point of order, but a rousing call for TikTok to make its algorithm less good and stop giving journalists politics on their TikTok. They don't want to see it. We gather from across the nation, from the Commonwealth, 
and from the nations of the world to mourn our loss, to remember her long life of selfless service. The Queen is dead. God save the King of England and also of Canada, I guess? Personally, I'm pretty ambivalent about the monarchy. The fact that Canada's a constitutional monarchy, I feel, basically has nothing to do with my everyday life, and so I feel like it doesn't really bother me or inspire me very much. At the same time, though, if I were going to design a new political system for Canada totally from scratch, I really don't think it would involve a king that's on the other side of an ocean uh, in a country that I've only been to a couple of times and that many Canadians will never go to in their entire life. My lack of strong feelings, though, about the monarchy is really not shared by all people living in Canada. For many Canadians, the death of Queen Elizabeth II has evoked powerful feelings of nostalgia or the sense that we're at the end of some sort of golden age. Golden age, you say? Because the Queen's death has also reminded many people of the monarchy's legacy of colonization, its involvement in the slave trade and resource extraction over history, and its continued hegemony in some parts of the Commonwealth. The monarchy has historically profited immensely off the exploitation of its subjects, and it continues to sustain itself on the back of this problematic history. Is it time for Canada to rethink its relationship with the monarchy? Should we follow in the footsteps of countries like Barbados and cut ties with the monarchy altogether? Or is it logistically so complicated that we should just resign ourselves to dealing with King Charles III? Let's get into it. So, Catherine, people are kind of split on the issue of the monarchy. Like, do we like it? Do we not? It's unclear. Do you think there's a genuine appetite for shifting our relationship to the monarchy? And do you think it's strong enough, if so, for us to actually do anything about it? Yeah, and, and, and that's an interesting question, like the indifference versus the appetite to abolish the monarchy. In April, ahead of the Platinum Jubilee, when the Queen was sort of soft launching her death, remember there's like she was saying, like there's this transition. There was this Angus Reid Institute survey, and it found that 63% of Canadians have a favourable view of Queen Elizabeth II, but only 29%, so less than a third, felt the same about Charles. So a lot of the people who have fondness for the monarchy, it's really about Queen Elizabeth's personal popularity. You know, they think of like their grandma, who was a monarchist, and clipped out every mention of the Queen in the newspaper. But I also feel like the majority don't necessarily want it. But the question is then, what happens next? What's the alternative? And I don't know if people really think about just how entwined our system is. Everything from our executive council derives its power through the queen, or now the king, I suppose, that it's his majesty's loyal official opposition. In our courts, we have crown prosecutors, and it's based off the English system of law. So I think the majority wouldn't be sad to see this system go. But I mean, the number one question, and as Riley was speaking on her point of order that I was thinking of, all of our treaty relationships, the relationship is through the crown. Maybe it's an opportunity to give that crown land back. But are Canadians as a whole ready for that? It would be such a massive shift. Everything from tiny symbolism, like calling it a superior court instead of a court of king's bench here, to like the massive bigger questions, like do we have a 
parliamentary republic, a presidential republic? Do we want a figurehead or an executive president? The whiplash I have from going from soft launching the queen's death to like, do we give the land back now? Um, It makes me think of this tweet that I saw because I remember it was like the queen is transitioning. She's entering a new phase. And I saw this tweet that was like, she's getting a BBL. That's what's happening. That's why she's gone. The one thing I wanted to touch on, like, right now, just because you brought it up, was the question of treaties and the fact that Indigenous nations have their treaties with the crown. So, Riley, do you have thoughts about what it would mean to move away from the monarchy? Like, how would that affect treaties, not that they're always being respected to begin with? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot this past, I guess, however many weeks it's been now. It feels like both a second and an eternity. So many media outlets have been asking me for, like, my opinion on this. I have a personal opinion, but it's important to note that Indigenous people are extremely divided about this, that there's not actually a consensus among Indigenous people even about like what they would want to do. And that also speaks to the complexity of how different each of those treaty relationships are, how they've been honored. Like, you know, in the treaty that I come from, I was taught that they're like terrible, that they were made through coercion a lot of times, that they haven't been honored. And then there are people I know, especially out in the prairies, who like have been taught to revere that treaty relationship that it's something that's super sacred. And like, I saw a huge split in the way that Indigenous people even reacted to the Queen's death. And I think that that speaks to that very different relationship that different nations of Indigenous people have with the Crown. Personally, I think that, though logistically difficult, I think it would be beneficial to Canadians to separate from the monarchy. I don't know that it would be for Indigenous people. And the reason I think that is because I expect that the Canadian state is sinister and that if they were ever in such a position where, you know, they no longer had to uphold those treaty relationships because they didn't have to act on behalf of the Crown in that way, that they would just kind of annihilate Indigenous people's rights. I think it's like the gap between idealism and realism, right? Like, even this whole conversation, there would be so many logistical problems in opening up the Constitution to extract the monarchy from its role in the Canadian state. We've alluded to sort of the logistical issues that might come up if we were to separate ourselves from the monarchy. But David, can you walk us through the process, you know, for listeners who may not know why it would be so hard, what would it look like to move away from a constitutional monarchy if we were to try and do that? You know, do you have a piece of furniture in your house that's been there since before you can remember. And it's so big and heavy and cumbersome uh, that even though it's ugly and hideous and you desperately want to replace it, you can't be fucked to move it because you're like, I just don't think I'm gonna be able to get it through the door. That's how I think a lot of us feel about the monarchy. And the reason we feel that way is that to, to remove the monarchy from the country you need a constitutional amendment, a unanimous constitutional amendment. None of this piddling two thirds representing 50% of the population, uh, easy mode stuff. 10 provinces, 10 provincial legislatures have to say yes. The House of Commons has to say yes. And the Senate has to say yes. And you would assume you would have to have the, the consent of indigenous peoples in all of their uh, variety and complexity as Riley suggested. So it would basically be the most difficult thing this country has ever done. More difficult than Charlottetown, we saw how that went. More difficult than Meech Lake, we saw how that went. Perhaps even more difficult than patriation itself in the 80s. And that took, my God, they've been talking about it since the 30s. 
in fact, longer. In fact, we were sort of talking about this sort of thing basically from 1867 in one form or another. So it would be extraordinarily difficult, not just to get everybody to to do it, which you know would take years and may, probably is impossible, but to actually get them to do that and just that. Because imagine saying, we're, we're going to change the fundamental nature of this country. Great. I think a lot of people think we should. I'm in many ways one of them. Okay, fine. Do you think that provincial premiers would say and politicians in, in Ottawa would say, okay, but we won't touch anything else. We'll just leave it at that. Not a chance. As we learned from Meech Lake and especially from Charlottetown, you try to do one thing, simultaneously you're going to be doing dozens of things because everybody's going to want something and it's going to be different. And then Quebec is going to be concerned about federal encroachment, but so is Alberta and so is Ontario. It's not just a Quebec thing. That all said, I'll, I'll close on this point, I do think it's a useful conversation to have because at the very least we can talk about what we might do instead of that to, for instance, better honor treaty obligations, perhaps diminish the role of the monarchy in this country as has already been diminished so that we can recognize changing realities. So the end goal of removing the monarchy, such as it exists as a goal, ought to be more of a heuristic and a way into having different conversations than an end goal in and of itself. It's interesting you bring up the fact that this has basically been a discussion for over 150 years. Like, it's been this 150-year process of, like, quiet quitting the monarchy in stages, essentially, to use the other zeitgeisty term of the moment. But let's say, hypothetically, we did have a magic wand where we can open the Constitution, we're going to change only this, and Quebec and Alberta will not try and get other things done at the same time. Riley, like, what are the options? Because there have been countries that have actually left the monarchy or, you know, stopped having Queen Elizabeth, now King Charles as head of state, and have adopted other systems. So what have the experiences of those countries been? And if we were going to ever do this, you know, maybe even if we're talking about in 100 years' time, what might it look like? I think the advantage, of course, that other countries had that separated themselves from the monarchy is that they were, yes, colonial states or former colonial states, but they weren't settler colonial states. And that's always the thing that like throws the wrench in in the Canadian conversation for sure is settlers. <laughs> because all I can think of is the only way that Indigenous people would, I think, feel safe enough. And if I, what it would need for me to feel like affirmed that no, if we suddenly cut off ties with the monarchy and Canada no longer had to honor those crown obligations, would that there would have to be already something in place of the treaties, uh, before we did that, that made it so that the autonomy, the rights, the power Indigenous people had over those lands were sufficient. That's not a small task in saying that. That requires a complete transformation of uh, return of land, of what laws the Canadian courts will recognize, you know, that if Indigenous people are going to live and have their nations on those territories, they also have to respect the laws that we create on those territories and the enforcement that we do for them, all of those sorts of things. So it will require a huge transformation in Indigenous settler relations, I think, to ever get to a point where we could have a serious conversation about removing Canadians from the monarchy without it harming Indigenous people. And that is daunting. Most countries, at least all of the ones that I can think of, that have stopped having the queen or king, depending on the time period, as head of state, have been countries whose relationship with colonialism are not the same as Canada. Like, yeah, like in Barbados, that's like a colonized territory in a very different way than a country like Canada, where so much of the population is 
like, descended literally from British people who showed up here. We've talked, again, a lot about logistical problems, you know, what we would need for certain communities to feel safe. I know Belize, which is not a Caribbean country, but Central American, so vaguely close. Uh, there were massive, massive protests during a recent royal tour of Belize to the point that events had to be canceled. And I know other Caribbean nations, I guess Bermuda not being an independent country, but there's long been an appetite, I think, among especially the black population in Bermuda, like to get rid of the monarchy because they're literally still a colony, basically. Like they're, they're not a truly independent state in the same way that you know, even Barbados is. So it'll be interesting to see, again, different contexts lead to different results. But uh, David, do you have any final thoughts about, you know, Magic Wand? What might you want to see if we were able to axe King Charles III from the Constitution and from everything to do with Canadian government tomorrow? Well, I have to say, I mean, as much as I find the the monarchy distasteful and and don't support it, um, having a constitutional monarchy as a system is pretty effective. I mean, if you look at some of the best democracies in the world, you find a couple of constitutional monarchies in there. I think it's more that they're parliamentary that's doing the work. Uh, Parliamentary systems are typically better than congressional systems. I do think the one thing is the American system has been described as the United States' most dangerous export, which is saying something because, you know, that country exports a lot of dangerous stuff. Basically, we have one of the best political systems in the world in terms of having a stability, efficiency, so on and so forth. Whatever we could adopt that would be more or less the same as what we've got is probably good. (laughs) Which is to say that we'd want to have a kind of figurehead head of state and a political head of government rather than having, say, an American system where you've got the head of state having head of government bound up in the same person and or having two different elected people. Uh, Then you've got the question of whether or not you want to elect or appoint the head of state. Electing the head of state creates certain tensions and problems and gives them a legitimacy that you might not want them to have if you want to get things done at the parliamentary level. So again, that's all by way of saying, if we do end up doing something, let's just have it as as simple as possible uh, and as close to what we have now and focus on what I think should be the real battle at the institutional level, which is how we make it more participatory and how we bake economic and political egalitarianism and liberation into those institutions. At the end of the day, people in this country have a chance to truly govern themselves, not to be passive objects of governance, but active subjects of government, uh, which is a deeper, broader, I think, and more important question ultimately, because that's why people are going to be fundamentally liberated at the material level. But that fight might be just as hard as getting rid of the monarchy, although I think it's worth fighting. And with that mic drop, let's adjourn. That's been The Backbench. We'll talk again in two weeks when I'm back from my fourth trip to California this calendar year. If you're following along with what happens in Ottawa, let us know what you've been watching closely, what you'd like to hear us discuss, and what esoteric Canadian politics content you want us to break down. You can also send us any questions, concerns, and rants at backbench at We're also on Twitter at BackbenchCast. I'm Matea Roach, and you can find me at Matea Roach on Twitter. David, where can people find you? Fall markets, wherever there's a pumpkin spice latte, uh, the LCBO. But if you'd rather find me digitally than in person, which is how I prefer you to find me, please find me on Twitter at David underscore Mosscrop. You can also buy my book. I have a book about democracy available wherever books are sold, especially at your local shops and libraries. Yes, please don't find me in person, but I'm very nice online. <laughs>
being found in person is not my top thing. Also, I've read the book. It's great. You, <laughs> Thank I, you I very much. I wholeheartedly endorse people reading the book. Riley, where can people find you? People can find me on Twitter at Riley Yes No Maybe. They can also find my writing on my website, which is just RileyYesNo.com. And if you're interested in more conversations, like I kind of tiptoed into today about Indigenous revolution, I also have a podcast called Red Surgeons that you can find everywhere online. All right. And Catherine, where can people find you? Well, when I'm not at the local dive bar singing the Sex Pistols version of God Save the Queen, you can find me on Twitter at C. Gurkowski or... You can check out my work at politicstoday.news. Check it out. There's a free two-week trial if you want to see my newsletter. This episode was produced by Aviva Lassard and Nora Azria with additional production by Tristan Capacchione. Our production coordinator is Andre Pru. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. The Queen is Dead is perhaps the Smiths' greatest album, but guitarist Johnny Marr's work outside the band should absolutely not go unnoticed. In 1991, he teamed up with Bernard Sumner of New Order, my favorite band, to form the band Electronic. If you love sad dad music or are a sad dad, give it a listen. The music's actually not sad, I just think a lot of sad dads listen to New Order. And the Smiths. Please consider supporting our work, especially if you've been liking the show so far. Thank you for listening. Hey, it's Matea, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today.